0: Dr. James Canton is a renowned global futurist, social scientist, and author who has advised three White House administrations in over 100 companies. As a former Apple computer executive and high-tech entrepreneur, he is a longtime forecaster of the key trends and technologies that have shaped our world. Dr. Canton is CEO and chairman of the Institute for Global Futures, and today he'll discuss what comes next for technology in the post-pandemic era. Let's listen in.
1: Thanks very much for the introduction, Andrew, and thank you, uh, Liz and Nancy, for inviting me. Um, I'm going to talk for about 5-10 minutes just to give you kind of an overview of, of my, my subject, which is what's coming next for technology given the post-pandemic uh, moment that we're in. And uh, I'll do that and then take any questions that you have for as long as uh, Andrew uh, as our Commentator will let me uh, continue. So Where we're at right now, it's very interesting. We there's a lot of technologies and I want to package them together and, and, and one very important trend which is the digital transformation of business trend has been something that ironically the the prosperity and of the US economy up to the coronavirus has actually been a drag on certain sectors of the economy, uh, the US economy, which of course is not just, it's a trans-global economy, it's not just an economy that has borders, mm-hmm. it has global supply chains that begin in China uh, and end in Spokane. It has uh, virtual cyber pathways that may begin in the US, but circle around the world. And of course, e-commerce, uh, companies like Facebook, Google, Amazon, Reinventing entirely new business models um, But this notion of how prosperity has been a, a drag on Innovation, I know it sounds almost uh, Antithetical but at the same time you have a lot of tech companies who have moved very aggressively in terms of digital transformation But many other companies have not done that because quite frankly markets been robust and for all intents and purposes customers have been plenty there's been a war on talent we have seven thousand seven seven thousand to ten thousand jobs that prior to the coronavirus were going lacking because we couldn't find skilled folks to be able to work in science and technology particularly applied technology and business and this fusion of business commerce and technology is in the earliest stages so let me just define what i mean by digital transformation is i mean the business process transformation of jobs, rethinking work, productivity, and systems, the implications of virtual technology, such as cloud, uh, AI, predictive analytics, and and some of the forces that, that are actually now just emerging, we're gonna see over the next 12 to 15 months, if you will, such as 5G and the internet of things, and I'll go through each of these a little bit more and give you more of a drill down, but It's going to cause, I think, it's going to help us. One with a, a, a very—I'm not going to say a fast recovery. I call it the cha-cha-cha economy. Those you have to be old enough to know what the cha-cha-cha is, right? You know, I can see we've got a couple of folks that uh, maybe don't know what the cha-cha-cha is—a dance—is. But you know, one or two steps forward, right, Andrew, and a couple of steps back, all right. And that's what the recovery is going to look like. And it's also going to be very un. Uh, settled where you've got, um, interestingly, what's leading the S&P in the markets are a handful of top tech companies. And increasingly, that's what led the markets about uh, for the past three years. So now let me me break down about digital transformation, business process transformation, rethinking jobs, and now particularly virtual work. All of a sudden, people are redefining where they're working and kind of liking that. And the implications are that we could actually create new competitive advantages if we give more flex time to people so they have an opportunity. If you want to be going ahead and doing your work in the middle of the night so that you can go hiking or sailing during the day, I don't want to lose you as a value employee. I'd like to be able to capitalize on that. So, business process transformation is saying how many times in your organization are you going to touch a piece of paper? How many people? Are going to touch a piece of paper in order to get a job how many people are doing similar jobs how many people are rethinking what kind of jobs they do now my senses and from all of my research with my futurist hat on is we are going to have an explosion and return to a very robust economy but it's not going to come if we don't reset our tech strategies. And, that, and this is a message for boards, the message for C-level leaders, managers, as well as the direct line. Because interestingly, what's going on is that we have in the midst of, of what's happening in the coronavirus, we've also have new technologies which haven't even begun to produce productivity, but are in the research, you know, what's in the lab today will create opportunity tomorrow. Let me give an example. 5G, which is the next generation of not just telecommunications, but also the internet is going to create much faster speeds, entirely new kind of businesses, because you're going to have the ability of things, everything will have an IP address, the ability of it to be able to communicate, whether smart highways, or there are entirely new ways for supply chains to communicate their own deliveries, you know, there's a, there was an article I tweeted about yesterday about Google's AI, Google's artificial intelligence created its own language, it was not taught by humans, so it could be more efficient at being able to create valuable opportunities to create solutions to problems that we as humans don't quite figure out how to be able to do. So this whole notion of co-evolution of human beings along with advanced technology, particularly AI and humans, collaboration of both virtual and robotic automation, this notion of high collaboration for high performance, this is going to revitalize our economy. Uh, And I say that because I have an unfair advantage. When it comes to cyber and business process and cloud, analytics, uh, AI, 5G, I see most of these technologies in the labs. I see them first being tried and I get to evaluate them for some of the largest companies in the world. And, and it's not just from a point of view of productivity enhancement or, or job creation or this new collaborative kind of work environment, but it's also a bad competitive advantage. One of the things we do right in the United States is innovation. That's part of our DNA. When it comes to, like, there's 30 companies right now working on a vaccine. They're falling over each other. You're talking about a $10 billion marketplace. I know com- biotech companies that have stopped what they're doing to be able to work on this. So this notion of an explosion of bio, nano, IT, neuro, new technologies that are going to create many more jobs, again, than we've had opportunities to be able to persist. This notion of new technologies that will create entirely new kind of supply chains. I haven't even mentioned quantum computing, which is an entirely new computing platform that's not based on traditional computers. And it's very hard to be able to even implement implemented today, it may take 10 years, five years. We're going to see quantum computers, the next generation of processors that we have today. You're going to end up with a very different kind of marketplace, going to be more robust, and we're going to focus on the following trends, and then I'm going to finish up and take any of your questions. The first is the notion of a virtual organization because of the the, the, the coronavirus is going to become a reality. Two, we need to, as enterprises and government rebuild the trust of society. This is going to be a very important thing. And the critical thing to focus on, I've been talking about this with my briefs for uh, State Department of Defense and private sector, is we need to rethink biosecurity. We don't have a biosecurity plan. Where is the biosecurity strategic plan in the United States? I, I haven't seen it out of Congress. I haven't seen it out of the private sector. I haven't seen it even out of the Defense Department. So, you know, as a futurist, I'm big on strategic planning. The second is, other than having a biosecurity future plan, we need to have a new approach to employee health and wellness and recognize that much of what we're going to do to transform this economy, I think, not just in terms of innovations and not just because they're going to create productivity and they're going to create new opportunities, are going to also, every single one of these trends could end up threatening privacy. They could threaten our freedoms. They could threaten liberty. So, this tension between security, privacy, and being able to create not a surveillance society, which certainly China has got is the leader of. We need to represent and integrate our democratic values in these technologies with the right kind of oversights and the right kind of standards to be able to enable this to move forward. And the last key trend that's going to affect many of these technologies is ESG environmental, social, and governance. This is the fastest moving trend globally because you cannot manage the return to the economy and deal with the COVID crisis without also dealing with the realities of sustainability and ESG principles. I'm going to end that there. I know I've unpacked a lot and I'd be glad to answer any of your questions about resetting your tech strategy and what are some of the technologies that will change our near and far future. Thank you
2: thanks a lot, James. Um, well, uh, first of all, if you have any questions, go to the at uh, uh, the bottom of uh, uh, your screen, go to the chat room and uh, uh, we'll put you in the in the queue. Uh, right now, we've got three people in the queue, Steve Cushman, Eleanor Bigelow, Edward Jung, and then Randy crackrackko. That's four. I can't count. So uh, Steve, let's start with you. First question.
3: Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, sir. I wonder what effect you believe this will have on the commercial real estate market.
1: Well, with a name like Cushman, I guess you really want to know, right?
3: (laughs) Yes, sir. Quite a tell. tell.
1: I can't wait to play poker with you. Um, (laughs) So uh, you're actually, Christian Wayfield is a former client of mine. I've given a brief for them. So um, I, I think that, you know, I have some friends who own or involved in starting some of the largest REITs and I've, I've worked, you know, it's funny, you know, you real estate is uh, when all, all of the recovery programs were going on what I noticed was that the uh, mortgage assistance and the whole attention to the most important asset class in the United States Particularly for retirees and everybody else is owning a home, right? But commercial real estate. I think is going to have a rough ride. Why? Uh, I think I think it's going to be slower to come back, but it's not going away. Why do I say that? And I say that with my social scientist hat on. I think people are so fed up with quarantining at home that uh, that they're going to be wanting to get back in the game. I think there's just so much that you can do. You know, we're social creatures. We're we, You know, we're not creatures that live in the dark, you know, someplace. Uh, and I think Um, The the opportunity to be able to go back to work I think the opportunity to go to a place workplace is going to be critically important as well I don't think it's going to happen right away until again this cha 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 kind of economy where we move forward and then there's a there's pods of of, of Problems and come back. I do think that uh, commercial real estate will come back now I'm not commenting and I try to stay away from commenting as an asset class I think it's gonna get hurt, but if I was a betting man Uh, in terms of the market, uh, you know, REITs, particularly commercial REITs and commercial real estate, you know, uh, uh, when the market's down, right, buy low and sell high. So, again, my gut feeling is you're not going to tell me, you know, for the better part of uh, 150 plus years that uh, real estate, when you think about real estate not just being the DNA of all of our our, 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 uh, personal portfolios our retirement 70% of americans own real estate when it comes to commercial i think they'll be returned just slower and i think that maybe we need to rethink the environment to make it more you know bio secure if you will and if i think that's done right and done in an, in an inviting way people will be busting through the door even if they have to wear wear a mask
2: eleanor begalow hello doctor i had the pleasure of hearing you speak at the san francisco map society it's great to see you again um, my question is about how will the U.S. educate our young people to study these science-related jobs? Thank you.
1: Well, you know, that's where maybe some of you who are in government service and some of you who are in private sector can make a difference. That's that's really my DNA, what I'm concerned about. Um, you know, I've got an 18-year-old, a 20-year-old, and 26-year-old. 18-year-olds going to college in a uh, In NYU this coming year and of course they can't tell us if you're actually gonna sit in the classroom yet So I I know where that's going Um, Look, we've got a marvelous mechanism uh, and and I've worked with the National Science Foundation Which is really the think tank for the US government. I you know, every part of the government science and technology Platform is great. Uh, I I applaud it the National Science and Technology Council, which is chaired by the president uh, you know But at the end of the day, this is really about the private sector. There's two, let me keynote on two key sectors that are critically important to be able to educate, you know, our kids for these technologies. One is, um, you know, colleges, there's a big disconnect between what colleges are training for, even the best colleges, and what employers are hiring for. And we've got to fit that gap. There's a huge gap there. It's a great piece in Harvard Business Review uh, online that came out. I read it. I read it just today and it did a good job. You know, I'm I'm, We the the notion that I call it, you know, the difference between kind of the the hip-hop economy and the real Upskilled economy we need to bridge that gap why because a lot of technologies are not integrated the way they should be In other words, I don't think people need to get a go to and get a computer science degree I think every single course of study every single domain of study should have some kind of technology overview so they understand how to integrate that in terms of what they do. I used to, when my kids were young, I used to teach a course for kindergarten called Physics for Kids. And some of my, my friends thought, gee, that sounds crazy. Why would you do that? I said, because if kids can appreciate physics and, and forces uh, you know, early on, they might think about science differently. So I think that the reality is we need to almost disrupt I think universities, high schools, primary schools, and yes, kindergarten, to integrate technology fundamentals in terms of curricula. Anybody wants to work on that, I'd be glad to give you any advice you need. And the other is we need to recognize that the private sector is investing heavily with support from universities and from the government through organs such as NIH, NSF, and but we need to turn up the volume. We need to have more resources for science and technology, more research. And more focused because quite frankly we're playing catch-up when it comes to 5g com- competing with china playing catch-up with china regarding artificial intelligence and big data social media and we need to do better at that and if we don't do that quite frankly we're going to get our our butt kicked
2: okay, the next next question comes from uh uh randy Krakow, whose microphone is not working he asks uh how might all this impact employment, employee numbers, and wages for the ordinary
1: American? Well, when you talk about the ordinary American, for all intents of purposes, I think we do a great disservice by not integrating. And uh, going back to my earlier theme, um, If we need to start telling the truth about what's happening to work, okay? I'm not talking about workers. I mean, work, all right? The truth of the matter is, is that the, 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 we are going to, Onshore certain supply chains, particularly pharmaceutical from China, there will be certain onshoring of manufacturing. There will be certain onshoring of other kinds of critical uh, industries. But at the end of the day, you know, if your if your father worked in the Ford factory and that's where you would like, you know, you're going to get a job, I I can't I don't I don't think we can go ahead and and present the reality. Where the fundamental economics, the jobs, or the the employment is not there. I think we need to recognize that innovation is is accelerating. And you know, when I spend time now with manufacturers, they're focused on things like, for instance, the 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 sustainable and clean tech marketplace alone, we are not the leader of in the United States. Leaders are in, in, in Asia. Europe. We have entire sectors of our economy we could put people to work to around sustainable energies as we shift to a carbon, a decarbonizing our economy. We're not even training people for it. We're, we're letting other countries go ahead and train the people and the innovations. How many of you have a waste-to-energy facility in your town, in your city, whether it's Washington, D.C. or anyplace else? I don't think any hands are going to go up because that technology exists in Europe. And Asia doesn't exist in the US. So what I guess I'm saying is there's a lot of, not everybody's gonna wanna work in an office or should or, or, or even could. I'm not suggesting that every job is a knowledge job. But I am suggesting the manufacturing jobs, whether it's dealing with digital twins or AI or analytics, these are not, these are not replacing workers per se. I think we need to do a better job at how we create these fusion work models, which require upskilling around, yes, certain technologies, but also recognizing that we need to really think through uh, how we're going to take people. By the way, not everybody needs to go to college, but we used to have the way Germany has a very robust trade school environment. We need to rethink about disrupting education entirely and train for these new markets, these new industries that, quite frankly, are are being uh, implemented around the world, not necessarily in the U.S.
2: I'm I'm going to give you a little bit of a pushback here on uh, 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 the uh, some of the distance learning that's going on, some of the uh, work from home, because I think what what is lacking now is the face to face look in the eye, uh, you know, the 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 uh, smell the body odor, wh- whatever it is, of being in the room next to the person. Of being able to interact uh, up close and personal, that I just uh, uh, see as not happening right now. And you know, we're all saying yes, we're getting along for the last six or seven weeks because we're running on adrenaline, and because it's not as bad as we think it is. But uh, you know, we're not, we're not, uh, we're not working at hundred percent, even though we think we might be.
1: Well, uh, feel free to push back on that, Uh, and, you know, I'll push back, too. I think that um, my daughter is 26. She moved back home. She gets up at 7, works, uh, quite frankly, harder at virtually than she does because of the – now, I'm not suggesting that that, that virtual work or distance work or distance learning, virtual college, replaces this close – Of being with people. I think actually people are going to hunger for this They're going to run back to and I think look I want my son and he wants to be at NYU Where he can sit around and debate with people and physically be with them Well, We have to face a new reality and that's called, you know, the biosecurity future. We have not we disregarded every single signal signal about biosecurity Coronavirus is not new. It's just the next chapter of what we've already seen. So Without you know prosecuting that I couldn't agree more with you. There's no pushback there I think people want to get back to work and and there are going to be certain folks that are going to want to have more flex time You know I'm a CEO of a company that I've said to a number of the folks that work for me Look, you're gonna be able to make choices, but you know, that's not going to take the place of physically connecting with people But uh, we have to respect also people's space and this biosecurity Notion is something that's not going to go away. We may be living the new normal may be a kind of, whether we like it or not, a virtual and physical. I call I have a word for it called the blended reality. The blended reality, I've been talking about that for, I don't know, 10 years. It's in one of my books, Future, Future Smart. The notion of it is, is that we're already living in a virtual reality, virtual and physical. Some days I'm with you physically, other days I'm with you virtually. I think we're going to have more choices as well.
2: Next Isn't question. Kelly? Thank you very much. My apologies.
3: Uh, one of the big issues is, of course, what happens to the the laboring class,
2: and that includes the blue collar, but even below that, what do we do with them? Does this does this new uh, economy have any room for them?
1: I, I think it does. Uh, the, again, coming back to kind of an economic normalization in the U.S., which I think we'll head to. I think though that it's going to I'm kind of excited. I'm waiting for a client to say, "Hey, we want to know what onshoring looks like. What does that look like? How do we do that?" Um, you know, and I think that onshoring certain supply chains that have been particularly in China back to the United States means what? It means an explosion of jobs. Um, I think we need to seriously sit down and say, "Well, what is it? What? What? How much of the population needs to be upskilled to be able to do manufacturing?" There there are challenges we have about, you know, manufacturing best practices are requiring more and more technological savvy skills than ever before, and I just don't think necessarily we train for that or focus on that as much as we should. So I think there's an interesting conversation about one is this co-evolution model of work, where technology and humans co-evolve. Second is onshoring of certain key industries. And the third is maybe retooling for a population that doesn't necessarily want to, you know, go and study political science at college, but wants to maybe study uh, mechanics or industrial automation or industry 4.0 or, you know, how to be able to build things, you know, this whole maker revolution. I think there's room for all of that in a big tent in the United States and throwing resources at it to be able to understand it first and then come up with a plan. I think is the way to go. You know, in the old, I worked with UPS for many years, advising them, and uh, they they got to a point in the 70s and 80s, um, and then eventually in the 90s I worked with them where they just couldn't find people to operate in their in their facilities, and they ended up building out. They actually ended up building programs inside of high schools to onboard people. Who could then end up being first, of course, drivers or working in the hubs, which is their version of the factories, and then supervisors. It's a very lucrative, very hardworking job, but you know, they weren't knowledge workers per se. I think we need to rethink what we mean by you know industries and train people for that, given the new realities of the global competitive marketplace. Maxine?
2: Maxine Clark?
4: Uh, My question is about education also, because as you're talking about these uh, trade skills and different skills, almost every, any one of the trades requires an exam called the work piece, which is developed by the ACP people. uh, And it requires math. And it's not just basic math. It actually is algebra. Bricklayers and uh, builders and carpenters all need to be able to measure and to be able to do this kind of math. And so, if we aren't doing something in our public schools, our K to 12 education to shore this up, to make it more interesting, to make it more practical, uh, something, uh, we're going to really lose all these kids. And then we're going to be saying they're on welfare. They don't make good choices, whatever those uh, subjects that'll come up. What country do you think we could look to or countries that has really reinvented its K to 12 education system to make space for all kinds of possibilities? Whether you go to college yeah. or not, you're college ready.
1: Great question, and um, for me, the uh, uh, probably the leader in is Germany. Um, I'll I'll cite a couple of countries that I like. Um, Germany has had a long tradition where you know you you basically in high school their version of high school you have a bifurcated track, and you know it's and and their bifurcated track is you can either go the the kind of uh, normal. Going to college for liberal arts or going for political science or medicine or stuff that you want to study law Or you can go to kind of a, a trade track a technical track and and this is you know, we uh, um, This is not new. I mean Germany's been doing this for the better part of, of You know 34 years and what it is is that the industry is, if you look at how Germany and, and this is for Austria and Germany as well to a less extent in Italy and France but, you know, they have programs where you can work in jobs and get mentored. It's the old trades uh, uh, trades mentorship model that almost goes back to, you know, the Middle Ages, if you will. You go, you go through, you work, you get credit for your, your program, it's extended, and then you come out uh, uh, with jobs that are not just, you know, jobs that they, they have a certain amount of technical capabilities, to particularly work in manufacturing, which are very math and science oriented, very applied. We don't train for that. And we, and again, I would look at the German model. I would also take a look at what we're doing in Finland. Now, Finland has, has, doesn't have as, as quite a, a, it's a smaller system compared to Germany, but they've got some pretty good, interesting collaborative work projects where you're encouraged to be able to be makers. And, you know, when was, how, how, and does anybody remember having a, uh, a hammer or a saw in their hand when they were in high school. I Remember I was part of an era I grew up in New, New York where you know going to shop was I mean, you know You were lucky if you could get into that program. It was one guy and at the end of the day He didn't teach you squat. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I think we made pots my, my point simply put is we could it's on us to do a, make a better job Look at what Germany and Austria done particularly Germany done a great job and I think there's other countries that have probably done as good as well. I've been associated with Singapore over the past uh, number of years. I, I advised the Economic Development Board. I served on it for about half, uh, half a decade. And you know they've done some interesting stuff. So their version of of high schools, right, and colleges is much more technically oriented, right? So and and their notion of uh, even though they do have manufacturing and that's been a, an important part, but they've also integrated that with like biology, you know, biological and other kinds of higher manufacturing platforms related to pharmaceuticals. You know, the truth is that colleges are not preparing. What happens is you have 97% of all the companies that are hiring have to retrain people, regardless of when when they went to community college or Harvard. That's the dirty little secret. You spend a quarter million dollars going to university, and then, quite frankly, you know, uh, Microsoft, uh, and many other companies not just tech companies have to retrain you to actually have skills to be able to work w- Why aren't the colleges doing that? so we need to do a better job of being able to do that you know, that whole supply chain of knowledge from high schools, you know from grade school to high school to college and preparing people I think is 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 really Kind of broken. We need to do something about it as parents and as policy makers
3: And Yes, uh, Dr. Canton, thank you for your comments. I've been a long time investor in innovation, believe in U.S. innovation, and believe it's accelerating. My question for you is about productivity in ter- in terms of what your view is of where we have been and then w- where we're going. And I know you're aware of Robert Gordon's book and that you know one of the reasons why productivity uh, in recent years reported productivity has been low is because some of the big stuff that was done in the beginning of the 20th century is is passed on the other hand you've had tremendous innovation uh, especially since 07 with all the companies that were formed in 07 and yet that's not showing up in the in the stats do you think it's a measurement issue uh, do you think it's just we are lagging in productivity and where do you see it going
1: good question ken uh thank you for it um i think it's a me- it's a measurement issue it's a metric issue um i think that you know you you for we've been flogging this horse for such a long time productivity is low the economists have said productivity is low excuse me um you know you've got the better part of two-thirds of the economy. Real GDP is tech-enabled. I'm sorry, is there something you don't understand that, Mr. and Mrs. Economist? I deal with economists all the time. You know, it's great. And, and, and I have my own economic models. So I've written about it. It's broken. Why? Because productivity, it's like, not econ, econ, economics is not caught up with realities of digital transformation. Nano, bio, IT, neuro, quantum, AI, where do those show up? They show up in GDP. You know, look at Amazon. Look at Amazon, Google, Apple, Microsoft. Those are companies that are, that are NVIDIA, Fangs that have, that have really, now, is that a great mar- measure? Well, look at the trillion dollar club and then look at how many people they employ and then look at what they do to market. Are they the only ones? Look around. You know, you could take the Fortune uh, 100, or take the, the the highest capitalized successful companies on the Dow Jones, and look at it uh, from decade to decade, and you're going to see a breakdown. What are the one of the the key reasons they did the, the reason you didn't make the cut is because they didn't evolve. So productivity, as far as I'm concerned, you got to look at it. For, I think I think GDP is a better is a better look. I think um, uh, labor. Forget about labor productivity. How about just unemployment I think that's a much more that's a realistic metric you know before the coronavirus you know we had massive amount of labor showdowns, talent uh, poaching across industries. you couldn't hire people you know I'm not just a uh, you know an ivory tower forecaster I run a think tank but I've had 10 companies I have a pri- private equity company now you know I roll up my sleeves I see what's going on to hire people fire people, we can't can't find people. So I think the GDP is more realistic. One, two, uh, other than productivity, the velocity of capital moving through our system and the size of our twenty trillion dollar plus you know economy uh, and our ability to be able to you know foster free markets and, and and use innovations to create new business value. I mean, these are these are an incredible. I think uh, there is certain asset destruction. There are new businesses emerging. I mean, I know everybody's afraid that, you know, Amazon's model is going to going to destroy retail. It may be that way. I miss the local bookstores, right? I, I understand that. But at the end of the day, this notion of productivity is flat. Look at Europe. Their productivity is flat. So is their GDP. How are they ever going to pay back? How are they ever going to... With a social welfare system in Europe, our biggest problem is they could just slip into the sea at the end of the day, and they're printing their own money. Except when we're printing our money, six trillion plus—the equivalent to you know what we did in World War II to fight a war—we'll have an ability to, to grow out of this, right? And that's going to be critically important. Our ability, GDP, is much more important than productivity. It's—it's it's like worrying about inflation. I don't worry about inflation; it hasn't risen to its head. No one, the Fed. Not building a model based on it anymore. Will it come back? I don't think so. Productivity's flat. So what?
3: That's my sense.
2: Fred Seidman,
3: uh, as a Eustonian, can you uh, uh, give me your thoughts on consumer demand going forward for fossil fuel and how you view the energy industry, uh, say for the next twenty-four months?
1: Uh, okay. Uh, let me say that uh, <laughs> I, I, I think that fossil, you know, the f- first reality is where? If you're asking me this and you're pointing, you're saying you're in the Middle East, you know, if you're Saudis, I would say, you know, you shot yourself, keep shooting yourself in the, in the face and likely you won't right. make it to Christmas okay, or Ramadan. So at the end of the day, if you're asking about the United States, well, I'm going to assume you're asking me about the United States, and then we'll talk a bit about the global market for energy assets. No, no, absolutely,
3: United States, because I would mentioned, as a again, as a Estonian, how is this going to affect right. our economy? Okay. We
1: are still right, so great. dependent
4: on energy. Right.
1: So, so, so um, uh, here, here's kind of my take on this. My take on this is, first of all, the United States is energy independent. We're exporting energy, right? A lot of Americans don't even that, that's a new phenomenon. We're no longer right. sending a billion dollars to OPEC, okay? so and, and you'd be surprised. Nine out of 10 people, I say that to, they go, really? We're, we're energy independent? Yeah. And and that's we're true. exporting energy? I go, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. I'm not, I'm not, I don't, you know, we have more gas, natural gas, for all intents and purposes, than we could use for, you know, a couple hundred years maybe, right? Correct. So at the end of the Correct. day, though, remember, remember what I said earlier about the, the, how prosperity has been a drag on digital transformation because the things are going so good, mm-hmm. who cares, right? It's the same kind of thing with energy. What's right. happened is because we've had such cheap energy, particularly natural gas. What do we do? We said, ah, solar. Who cares, right? We got Burn it, cheap. Right.
3: Energy.
1: So at the end of the day, though, there's this other imperative, which if anybody you know is interested, and I mentioned it earlier about ESG, when you know when 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 Fink comes on and talks about, you know, the largest mutual fund in the world talks about, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we're moving our portfolio to ESG and and, and green energy, and you've got major institutions and mutual funds have said, you know, we're moving out of it. You have to stand up and you have to look at that. And that's an issue regarding investing for the future. Why? Because I don't think we want to have China uh, go ahead and dominate the next energy economy. I just don't think it's realistic to expect that that's something we can just leave that on the table so my my gut feeling is what's gonna happen for the next 24 months is You're still gonna have kind of this this circus between Russia Saudis China You know, this is gonna be a tension there and it's gonna it's gonna depress oil Values no matter what but oil is not just oil because obviously as you mentioned or somebody did it has a massive impact on, on on labor, it has a massive impact on pharmaceuticals, Correct. manufacturing. So my sense is because I I, mm. I, I have I have done work for is all of the biggest oil majors are recognizing that they can either avoid the reality that there is a new green economy mm-hmm. emerging or they can invest in it. And what I notice is they're investing in it. Why? because they've got the resources to invest in and create a solution for all intents and purposes. So what do right. I think in 24 months, you're going to see a migration, a beginning of a migration towards, I think, you know, green bonds or new asset class for financing. Okay. That's great. But quite frankly, nothing's going to happen quickly. So you're going to end up having this kind of bifurcated marketplace uh, where, where, oil assets, they're going to appreciate the, you know, a rising sea lifts all boats in terms of assets. Oil will improve. Will it ever get back to seventy bucks? I don't think so. I just don't think the economics right. are there until it's blind to playing demand. I I mean I wouldn't bet on it. Okay, uh, and I know that seventy is kind of the magic number. But if you're the Saudis or Russia, you can play the game at thirty. I don't even know. I mean I think thirty. So I, again, I don't want to give you a number. I just want to say in the, the context of what's going to happen, twenty-four, you know, two years really to to five years, you're going to have a shift. I think. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and let's just say the energy mix, coal, gone, gas, and certainly oil will still be present, a diminished, exponentially diminishing, I think, part of the, uh, in terms of resources, and a rise of, uh, you know, uh, certainly uh, next-gen solar uh, other kinds of uh, uh, alternative energy, I think it's going to start to get phased in because we also don't want to leave that money on the table for China to be able to dominate. They've already, for all intents and purposes, um, one of the biggest areas of IP you don't hear about China has uh, conducted uh, industrial mm-hmm. espionage what they've done in the energy areas because they recognize where all this is going. Got they want it. to own clean tech, and I just don't think we can let them do that.
2: We've got uh, three more Thank questions, uh, Mark Lieberman, then Shaman, uh, Stamen Ogilvie, and then we'll let Glenn Lowenstein close it out. So, Mark Lieberman. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Um, James, question is for those of us in the private sector. Uh, before the COVID crisis, there was a movement to retrain, we touched on some of this, retrain the workforce due to dislocation from advanced technology and combining that with universal basic income. Does the crisis accelerate that, or does it slow that down?
1: Well, it's a it's a great question uh, and close to my heart, being you know the Bay Area and all. So um, I would like to believe. First of all, it's got to happen no matter what. (laughs) If but I I'd I'd likely I'm a private sector over government sector guy. Do I think that our leadership in Washington is going to be supportive of that and going to lead with that. um, I don't. I do think that the part that they get to play in that is, I think, we're not going to call it guaranteed income, but there is going to be a a larger and considerably longer period of time where people are going to get funds. And I'd like to see them get more purposeful funds, funds that are put towards their own personal and professional development. Okay, so mark you're, you're spot on here. I'd love for the white house. I'd love for uh, Senators congressmen I'd, I'd love for there to be an initiative that says you know for all intents and purposes and having been part of other Administrations I've, I've encouraged this But I really do think the private sector has to step up and do this I really think that you know, uh, you got eric schmidt talking about that I'd love to see the chamber chamber of commerce stepping up. I'd love to see High tech companies together take more responsibility, just like the governors have, and say, okay, let's create a program that really is going to train for the next technical issues. Bring you know upskilling. I'm part of a I I advise a a foundation called Strata um, Education Network regarding this. I I really do believe the future of America is upskilling at all levels, and I think we need to do a better job at all that. And this notion of guaranteed income, inevitably, we're going to go there. We're just going to package it differently. Inevitably, we're going to go there because you are going to have a big part of the economy that, you know, can't work at home and doesn't have a job. And we're going to need them maybe to work in an in industry or maybe even have them become startup uh, folks and makers. We could end up with a renaissance in our own labor market by teaching, upskilling, and enabling innovation technologies for folks throughout the economy at every level we talk about technology if it's something that's you know at the higher level of the knowledge workers It's not it's getting pushed down more and more as uh, many of you understand So I'd love to be see the private sector step up with that and of course I'd love to see the. I think the government will play their role in extending uh, Not just PPP but other kinds of initiatives. It'd be great to have one that focus on you know Innovation and future readiness where you can get upskilling education training programs and you can get paid to, to learn new things. I, I think that would be more important to address maybe as much as the 50 plus Americans that are going to need that. And we're going to need them to work in a new industrial sector. You know, I'll tell you about a project that relates to this right now I'm advising on. It's a uh, biodegradable plastics pro- project, redoing plastics, you know, making all plastics that are produced biodegradable. It's an industrial, it's, it's a new industrial thing, right? I'm going to in the Bay Area wants to do that. I'm going to find some green bond financing for them. They're going to probably end up hiring a couple thousand people and have to train them how to run a production line. How many of us know how to run a production line? So I, I think that that's in the offing. And I'd like to see kind of, you know, uh, public policy support to support people in doing that, learning new technical skills for this kind of new post-industrial economy. Thanks for the question. Sam and uh
3: Doctor Canton, you've talked a great deal about education and technology uh, in this last hour. Uh, obviously, they have to be facilitated by an economic system and a governmental system. Are you optimistic about ours right now, or as you look to the future, are you anticipating uh, elements of modification in the way we run our government and our economic system? And I guess the uh side question to that is uh whatever your answer is on us in the united states what do you anticipate our either cooperative or antagonistic countries uh to be doing with theirs
1: well i'll i'll, I'll try to be brief because that's a kind of the mountaintop of briefings i've been doing on kind of the geopolitical implications of the COVID post-COVID environment so uh let me focus on our economic future um i could not be more you know robust about our and positive about our economic future you know capitalism is strange you know every seven to ten years we create a crisis for ourselves just look at the numbers right there's some kind of crisis there's an snl crisis you know we had 9-11 and then we had you know the, the the recession the dot-com blow up and now we've got this so you know you can pretty much there's a you know democracy is messy i get it but you know our economy quite frankly with each of these has come back strongest you hear what i'm saying with each one of these great challenges and i i lived through all of them Um, them so far you know we we've been able to actually do okay and we've been actually been able to survive and we've come back Uh, I think uh, more robust there needs to be what I refer to as kind of in each one of these I noticed I've started to analyze and isolate what has led to our economic not just resiliency, but coming back You know, what's the what's the moment of the Phoenix rising the economy? Part of it's been economic liposuction where where companies that were not as viable or living on kind of the velocity of capital or they weren't really innovating fast enough or they weren't really uh, generating enough, let's say, uh, not just profitability but even revenue. That there's been there's been new company formations based on particularly innovations that have made a big change. I think that we've done. We almost you know, this is going to sound almost strange to some of you, but I almost feel like we we not purposely create, but we inevitably end up with a crisis. And we end up, whether it's, you know, World War II, as as, or as I've indicated, even this public health crisis, we end up being stronger. We end up being, the economy is stronger. We end up creating new industries, new job jobs, and new technologies, which en- end up creating greater prosperity and value for the United States. I think that just says something about, it's really, it's really about evolutionary biology. I just think that as a nation, we're set up with, you know, people, we're, the best, Advertisement the United States is all the other, you know, either autocracies or failed governments or 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 oppression around the world where you can't kind of do what you can do in the United States in terms of charting your own future I hate to sound almost Pollyannish about this, but that is going to lead to our economic. I think Revitalization I'm positive. It's not gonna happen overnight, but it'll happen. Um, Let me say something about other nations. We are you know number two wants to be number one China wants to be able to, you know, China's doesn't hasn't gotten the email yet that many of the challenges facing global security Impact them, you know, and I still find it hard to believe that China uh, uh, Purposely somehow led to the virus Why would anybody basically screw, you know Your largest customer and crash your your own economy because they've lost so much value. So Uh, It's a complex relationship with China, but they are, um, they they used to be a peer and now they're an adversary. I think it's partially uh, leadership. I do think there's parts of the world that, you know, we're going to have to probably revitalize certain failed or failing states because on the other side of the coronavirus, there are going to be some states that will be at risk. But I do think that, again, it's an opportunity for the U.S. to reset global strategy. Um, And this whole notion of American exceptionalism, which is a threat to some countries in the world uh, less to Europe, but particularly to China particularly to uh, 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 Let's just say the obvious bad actors such as North Korea Who cares? I do think we need to resolve the relationship with China because for all intents and purposes there's a linkage of, of of global financial infrastructure between the eurozone North America and China. I believe that cooler heads will prevail, and I don't think there won't be friction, but I do think they'll be resolved. And I also think that that competition is good for us because they are such a powerful rising superpower. And I think we need an adversary at that level, playing at that game, to make us better. I know that may not be popular with some people, but you know that's the uh, raison d'être, the reality of, of of this relationship.
0: Dr. Canton is confident that the U.S. can have an economic renaissance in the post-COVID era, driven by new technology, but to seize that promise, he says we will need to embrace entirely virtual organizations, rebuild the trust of the general public, rethink a biosecurity future plan, and develop new approaches to employee health and wellness. He also cautions that any of these priorities could threaten our privacy, so it will be essential to develop approaches that protect our freedoms. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.